Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This Ben Jarofsky Show, Benny J Bonus Interview is brought to you in part by SEIU Healthcare, Illinois, Indiana, the Chicago Federation of Labor, in the Chicago Reader. Benny J, take it away. Bonus time on the Ben Jarofsky Show as I speak. Friday, March 5th, 2021. The headline in the New York Times, the headline that'll be apropos to the conversation that's about to happen, conversation that I've been looking forward to all week long. Here's the headline. GOP ignores working class, it won over. <laughs> it's a headline uh, in a story in the New York Times that talks about how roughly 40% of union households, according to exit polls, voted for Donnie Trump for president. And yet the Republican Party is opposing the minimum wage, opposing the stimulus bill, resisting any effort to allow uh, to help uh, workers organize into a union. Somehow or other, they're going to hold on to that 40% with culture wars by battling the Dr. Seuss Foundation. Anyway, so much to discuss with my distinguished guest. And as I always do with my distinguished guests, I asked him to introduce himself. So introduce yourself, distinguished guest. Well, Ben, it's great to be back. Um, I'm David Ferris. I'm an associate professor of political science at Roosevelt University. I'm the author of The Kids Are All Left. And I'm actually going to talk to my publisher to change the title of my, my other book. to it's, it's called It's Time to Play Dirty, but I'm going to change it to... Um, it's time to beg Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema for things. That's what I think it actually be called. So, ladies and gentlemen, David Ferris, one of our favorite guests. Uh, our, our listeners really love you, David. Uh, and he's been eager to talk to bash Joe Manchin forever. He f- saw this. David Ferris predicted this was going to happen in October. He goes, "Bet I have these nightmares of Joe Manchin <laughs> running." It's fifty to fifty. The no, it was after the election because then you knew it came down to uh, Georgia. And he said it could be 50-50 tie. Uh, yeah, it's Joe Manchin. We'll get to Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema in a little bit. Uh, but at, all day, uh, the Democrats, the, the, excuse me, the senator has been convening to try to uh, pass a stimulus bill, pass a minimum wage bill. And this was happening, uh, David, I wasn't following because I was doing the live show. But uh, you were the one who broke the news to me. So... Uh, a number of uh, Democratic senators joined forces with all the Republicans to oppose a minimum wage bill. I'm going to give you the trivia question in a little while. Name those senators. There are eight of them, seven Democrats, one independent. What the heck is the Democratic Party doing? Let's just start with that general. I mean, uh, we'll put aside for the moment what the Republicans are doing, trying to hold on to uh, the working class with culture wars and culture wars only. But what are the Democrats doing? Why are the Democrats, David Ferris, not openly championing and fighting for some basic Democratic values like raising the minimum wage? Go ahead. You know, I, this is well, I think I'm going to say this probably a thousand times on the show the next three years. But like. 
you know, like 80% of the Democratic caucus is, is in the right place on this, you know, and that's, that's, a, that's a big movement from, from 15 years ago. Um, but, the, but, you know, ultimately, if they can't deliver, they can't deliver, and the whole party's going to take the blame for it. Um, I think there's a couple of senators, you know, uh, Manchin and Cinema. Uh, so I, I think this some, some, some friends of mine online have agreed to call, just combine Manchin and Cinema into a single thing called Simchin. Um, <laughs> so we're just going to call them Simchin from now on. Uh, I, I think that Simchin are, are, are ideologically opposed to, to doing things with simple majorities where, where they have to where they have to change the rules of the Senate to, to get the things passed, you know, so to, to get the minimum wage hike through, they'd have to overrule a parliamentarian as part of this ridiculous budget reconcilia- reconciliation process. And they don't want to do it. Um, I, you're going to give me the quiz for the, for the other Democrats who, who voted against this. If I could guess, um, I would say uh, Chris, is Chris Coons on that list? Cause he's, always yes. on, he's always on one of he's these. One. I, that was what a shock. I thought, I thought Delaware, being Joe Biden's home state, you know, I just, this gets to Biden. I mean, it's just so unthinkable. It'd be like in Chicago politics, Mayor Daley allowing the alderman of the 11th ward to vote however he wants, you know, it's like, it's not supposed to work that way. Look, could you imagine LBJ saying to whoever the senator from Texas is with maybe it was Benston. Uh, you vote however you want on this no, no, bill. I, I don't mean, care. I don't understand. I mean, you this know? is a big problem I have with Biden is he's, he's not publicly putting pressure on these people. You don't have to, he doesn't have to invent names for them, you know, like capitulating Chris Coons. I mean, <laughs> but, uh, you know, you, you gotta, you gotta wield your power. You know I mean? These, these people yeah. in your party, you're the leader of the party. And it's, if they're not doing what you want, you, you gotta, you gotta put some pressure on them. I think there's probably on the right flank of the democratic party, some set, some sense that, you know, we don't want this one size fits all federal uh, wage hike um, when we, we want the states to be able to do it or it's not going to work in my state because my state is so poor that, you know, $15 an hour would be crazy. Um, and or they want to they want it to be part of a standalone bill. And I, I could actually see if they were willing to pass laws with a simple majority, I could actually see a case um, to do this separately because the COVID bill is super popular and the minimum wage hike is super popular. So then you control more than one news cycle by passing two popular things, but that's not, that's not what is going to happen here. Right? Like there seem to be uh, a number of Democrats who simply will not um, eliminate the filibuster to pass legislation and, and they're never going to get 10 Republicans to raise the minimum wage. So I don't know what they're waiting for. I mean, Kirsten Cinema goes out there and she says, um, I don't want this to be part of the COVID bill. So, um, you know, we, we should have an open debate on the Senate and, and come to a bipartisan compromise. And if she really believes that, I, I mean, I just, I don't know what to tell her, you know, so she might as well believe in UFOs. And um, so th- that's what's going on. I, mean, I think it's a mixture of, of uh, cowardice in, in terms of refusing to change the Senate's rules so that the majority can, can govern. And, and the other factor is, um, that they just might not agree with the policy. And that's, um, that's, a, that's an internal democratic problem where you have to get the whole caucus on board with, with ideas. Um, I don't actually know who I'm quoting right now, but somebody, somebody said that the, the democratic party represents the whole span of, of rational discourse and I- ideology in America. <laughs> so, but, you know, from Bernie Sanders to, to Kirsten Sinema, that's all the rational people in, in American politics. And it's, so it's, if you want to have an internal debate amongst yourselves, and come to a, a decision, and then you're willing to implement that decision. I, I could accept that. Like if, if Manchin and Cinema said we're going to phase it in, or we want thirteen dollars instead of fifteen, and then they would break the filibuster to do it, I'd say fine. 
you know, like you, you, you guys are senators too. Uh, your, your pivotal votes, you want to get your way on policy, get your way on policy. But I don't understand why they want to die on the hill of doing nothing instead of using their power to shape the legislation in a direction that they want to use it and, and they want to shape it. That just doesn't yeah. make sense to me. I, I, you raise the issue of policy. Uh, and so let's discuss policy for a moment because I, don't, I, I actually have a, a hesitancy to do that. And I've said this to you many times, David, this is one of my favorite themes. There is no policy debate in uh, American politics anymore. Uh, the Republican Party, presumably the other uh, party that you would be negotiating with, just shifts its policy according to whatever needs it has at the moment. But just talk policy. Mitt Romney, who is the Republican who's gaining the reputation for being willing to defy Donald Trump and MAGA has proposed to literally give people, literally give them, just give them money if uh, for poor people. So why, if you're willing just to, just to cut a check, and by the way, he's opposed by people in his party on this thing that's saying, well, that would take away the incentive to work. Okay, so here we have another bill for people who do work that would raise the amount of money they get for working. You would think it would be an incentive to work by paying people more money to do work, and yet Mitt Romney is against it. How can you deal with the Republican Party? There's no logic to it. There's no overriding philosophy to it. The guy who wants to literally give you money is opposed <laughs> to raising the minimum wage. Please help me, David. I need help on this one. Yeah, no, it's crazy. And I, I, I come back to, honestly, I just come back to the filibuster, and I've been, I've been making this argument for a while that the, the filibuster is like the iron curtain that prevents sensible compromise from, from taking shape in the Senate because the, because the minority party believes that if they hang together, they can block everything. Um, and if you eliminated the filibuster, what it would mean is that for Republicans, you can either allow the final legislation to be a compromise exclusively among Democrats, or you can get on board with the other moderates and you can help shape it too. And that still leaves a bunch of Republicans out in the cold who aren't going to play ball on anything. But I think that without the without the filibuster, I actually think that you could get a lot of, you know, 55, 56, 57 um, uh, vote pieces of legislation where you have the conservative Dems working with the moderate Republicans. There's not that many of these people in the Senate anymore. Right. But they're but they are out there. Um, and, it, and if Mitt Romney and, and Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski knew that they could, they literally could not block legislation that Manchin and Cinema are on board with. Um, I really think it would change the dynamic of the whole chamber, and it would give all of these insufferable moderates exactly what they want, which is bipartisan legislation, um, which is them as the kingmakers. You know, but why would you? Wouldn't you want to be the kingmaker of something rather than the kingmaker of nothing? Um, so I simply don't understand why Kirsten Cinema wants to face the voters four years from now and say like, if, you know, if it wasn't for me, we would have, we would have passed legislation, you know, and that, that really been, that could have been awful if we raised the minimum wage and, uh, you know, passed voting rights reform and um, uh, protected your right to unionize and expanded your right to unionize. Uh, instead, what I did when I went to DC <clears throat> <laughs> was, uh, was nothing, you know, and uh, I stood up for a, a procedural, gimmick that the framers did not intend to put in the constitution and, and in fact did not put in the constitution um a procedural gimmick that the people have like retroactively decided is a 
um, is a boon to bipartisanship when it was really just um, a way for segregationists to, to block um, civil rights legislation. And so I, I don't I don't even get the I, I get like I get people that are like I would prefer that legislation be bipartisan. I don't agree, and I don't think that's how democracy should work. But I get I get where they're coming from. What I don't understand is people that that want to like wish cast bipartisanship into being where it does not exist. Yeah. And she has actually said, I promised you I wanted to complain about Kirsten Cinema. And I actually I'm actually much madder at Kirsten Cinema than I had at Joe Manchin because there's there's frankly nothing we can do about Joe Manchin <laughs> if we want him in the Senate. But you, you could see you could see somebody significantly to the left of cinema winning in Arizona. Um, and so she's she's actually become a real problem. And she has said she wants to restore the 60 vote threshold for everything. And and, and that means like if there's a, a vacancy on the Supreme Court, it, it, is cinema in favor of not filling that seat with a with with a 50 50 vote bro- broken by Harris? That's crazy. Like she, she wants to go back and, and undo in a unilateral surrender procedural escalations that were first undertaken by Republicans. And it's like, what are you going to get back for that? You know? Um, <laughs> so I, I, she's infuriating to me. I, I don't, and I'm not trying to be, I, I don't, I, I hope uh, it's not like misogynist for me to be more angry with her than, than Manchin. It's just Manchin is the only West Virginia, the only Democrat in West Virginia who could win that Senate seat. Yeah. And, and, and cinema is not the only Democrat in Arizona that could be in the Senate there. And so, um, I, I actually feel like she needs to feel the heat from the left sooner rather than later, you know, get a primary challenger that's credible out there, have them announced now four years early <laughs> and say, like, we're coming after you. I'm going to fundraise every day from now until then until you agree to, to, to nuke the filibuster um, or, or to do something else that, you know, she could call, she could say, I didn't nuke the filibuster. Um, but you, you know, you could have, you could say, we'll keep the filibuster in place for X, Y, and Z, but eliminate it for, for these other things, you know, you, you can change the rules so that you, you can claim that you still have the filibuster in place. So that's important to you, even though filibuster doesn't pull because nobody knows what it is and nobody cares about it. Um, all they see is the dysfunction, you know? <laughs> yeah. This uh, filibuster is a very bizarre issue. And help me with this one because we know, and this gets to the point I was making uh, earlier on the point that uh, is that you make so many times uh, in your book, uh, time to fight dirty. We know that the Republicans, uh, in particular Mitch McConnell, use the filibuster uh, strategically. When they need it, they grab it. When they don't need it, they throw it away. And we know, without a doubt, that if it was up, if Mitch McConnell would benefit by getting rid of the filibuster, he would get rid of the filibuster. Yeah. When I so when we turn to Democrats, it. I do not know why every Democrat, it's like, I'm just thinking about it. Joe Biden, oh, we got to keep that filibuster. <laughs> you know, cinema, we really need, I, I, I really, I don't understand what is motivating them with them. You gain nothing. There's nothing that Democrats gain at the moment, at the moment whatsoever, David, by having the filibuster. Why, why do they, I mean, you're, what is, why do they claim? Do you think there's one vote in Arizona that would f- flip uh, if she were to join forces to get rid of the filibuster? Please explain this to me. Look, I'm sure that out there <laughs> somewhere is a single issue filibuster voter. You know, that the person wakes up and is like, if they touch the filibuster, I swear to God, I swear to God, I'm leaving the party and I'm never coming back. <laughs> and if that person is out there, I assure you. Um, but there is no electorally meaningful slice of the population 
that wants a supermajority requirement to pass legislation. People may have um, <laughs> a, a vague sense that they want bipartisanship, much more so on the Democratic side than the Republican side, um, but they don't actually care about this specific rule, right? Um, and, and the reality is, like, you're not going to get bipartisanship. Like, she's going to be frustrated in this quest for four years, um, and I, I just don't know how she's going to explain that to herself at, at the end of the day. Yeah. And it's it's a, it's a it's a successful propaganda campaign, I think. Um, you know, in, in, in the same way that people, there's a lot of people convinced that America is a republic, not a democracy. Um, have, you ever, have we talked about this before? People, uh, I'm not sure. Go ahead. Go take a dive um, on this. It's it's people that are like, um, it's okay that, the, that, you know, the people of Wyoming have like 57,000 times more power than the people of California um, because America is a republic, not a democracy, you know, um, which is supposed to mean like uh, some, some sort of empowerment of the minority. And, um, you know, you're, you're against like uh, simple majority rule and you're against the tyranny of the majority. Um, but, there, but there is no meaningful difference between a Republican and a democracy. A republic just means rule through representatives. Um, and there, there is no democracy on the face of the earth, but people vote on everything all the time. So, so all democracies are in effect republics yeah. and all republics are democracies. It's just a stupid talking point. Um, that Republicans have like shoehorned into intro-American classes all over the country to convince people that everything that's stupid about our politics is actually in the system design and that that's what the framers wanted. Um, and in the same way, I think that the people who have elevated the filibuster, which was once something that was used very rarely, um, into, a, into an ironclad threshold for passing any laws is, is a successful propaganda campaign by by people who who benefit from and want to preserve the status quo and don't want to see it changed uh, that's uh, that was a great riff that was well put <laughs> by the way i just want to say uh, before we went on the air i read uh, uh an article where amy klobuchar moderate amy klobuchar who is running uh, as the mainstream most mainstream partisan let's work together i've in minnesota i got republicans to vote for me and cops to vote for me she even said i think the time has come to get rid of the full filibuster Amy Klobuchar yeah. says that. So, you got Amy. You know, I have an idea actually. Um, as we know, what we know about Amy Klobuchar is put lock Amy Klobuchar in a room with Kirsten Cinema, um, and just have her like berate her for like two hours and like Kirsten, go. You know, do you forget my fork for my salad? Give me your hair clip. <laughs> that ought to do it. I unleash Amy Klobuchar on her. I want them. I want her to yell at Kirsten Cinnamon until Kirsten Cinnamon breaks, because that's what it, that's apparently what Amy Klobuchar does to her staff is she yells at them until they break. Which is, by the way, a totally normal thing for men to do. It's it's only it's only a news item because because she's a woman. Um, but uh, but you know everybody has their skills. So take Amy Klobuchar's skill, which is I think abuse, and uh, and unleash it on on Kirsten Cinnamon and Joe Manchin and, until they crack, and, and come crawling back and, and asking for their minimum wage hike. That's my idea. Uh. All right. Well, uh, before we let it go, let's get the trivia question out. I this this list is staggering. These are the seven Democrats uh, and the Independent. We'll just give Angus King. We uh, we all know that from Maine voted no uh, to the the minimum wage. I guess people in Maine don't need uh, a wage hike if they're working at a McDonald's or whatever. Uh, thank you, Angus King. All right. So there's seven Democrats who voted against raising the minimum wage. Uh, yeah. You named two of them already, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema. You named thir a third, Chris Coons. I give you credit for knowing that, how you knew that he was in this group. And so that leaves one, two, three, four. Can you name the other four? 
I mean, okay, there's no, uh, there's no one that's ideologically obvious to me that, that I would say, like, that's a conservative Dem. I mean, I, if that's the criteria, I would say with Klobuchar, but I don't think Klobuchar was there on this list. So um, I, I guess that where I would go is people who think they're vulnerable in, in next year. Um, and that's a small list that includes, I can't remember which, which New Hampshire senator is up next year. I think it's Hassan. Yeah. Is she on that list? They're both on the list. That's <laughs> I'll give it to you. Uh, Jean, uh, Shaheen, and Maggie Hassan are both. <laughs> what's, what's, what's with New Hampshire? They seem to think New Hampshire is more of a swing state than it is. So I don't know what they're terrified about. I think that Maggie Hassan will win comfortably. But what do I know? I, th- I thought that Susan Collins would lose comfortably. So here we are. But um, So Hassan and, and Shaheen, so what does that get us to? So Simchin... Uh, <laughs> It's it's I, I won't I won't I won't make you stagger through this because it, it you've done so well anyway. Uh, I do not understand this. Uh, the other senator from Delaware, Tom Carper, uh, okay. voted against it, which really started to make me wonder about Joe Biden's position on this. If the two senators, the two Democratic senators from him, his home state, voted no, and then this one I don't get at all. John Tester um, from. Uh, yeah. Montana, who's always positioning himself as the kind of Democrat that can win in red Trump land, it would seem to me that a populist issue like raising the minimum wage would be the exact type of issue that would do well in Trump land. Baffled and baffled. Uh, David Ferris by his position on this list. I mean, the minimum wage pulls well, so I don't know what the, I don't know what these I don't know what these guys are on about. I, I, my guess is the minimum wage hike is would be above water polling and and everything um, And so, uh, okay, Tester, that makes sense. The the Delaware people is very puzzling, and the only thing I can say is, you know, they used to call Joe Biden the senator from MBNA. Which is a you know the, which is a bank and that mm-hmm. Delaware is like sort of notorious. I, I grew up in New Jersey, so Delaware is like what was in my neighborhood. And at Delaware was the place he would go to buy um, major consumer electronics because there was no sales tax. And it's a place where I think companies go to incorporate because I, I don't know I couldn't explain to you exactly why, but but something about the oversight process there um, is is notoriously lacking. And so the sen- senators from Delaware have been in my lifetime just consistently. Um, you know, servile to, to corporate interests. And so I'm just guessing, you, you know, whoever the 50 most evil people in, in, the, in the country are, they, whenever they want to stop something, they're like, uh, <laughs> what about the guys from Delaware? Can we get them? You know? And Parker and Coons are both just like replacement level, you know, uh, nondescript white dudes. Uh, uh, you know, they was like, yeah, sure. Yeah, we'll spike this. Who cares? I don't care about, I don't care about my people. Well, it's really bizarre because, again, uh, if it's 50-50, all you need is one Democrat to uh, be opposed to it, and it's dead. They they overkilled. If you add Angus King to the list, you got eight. And so I I just don't understand it at all from the political standpoint or the policy standpoint. And this is a main theme of, of your book and your work, David. Uh, there is a political benefit for Democrats championing issues, policy issues uh, that benefit the widest number of people. And so for the Democratic Party to run away from championing the very programs of values that their party supposedly represents, I, I just baffles me. I don't know what they're thinking. 
I don't know strategically how it's going to benefit them. I certainly don't know how it's going to benefit anyone in the country. It's almost as though it's a waste of time having Democrats in power. Do you share yeah, my sense of futility? That's the, that's my fear that that's going to be the dynamic going into 2022. And we, we had this conversation the last time I was on the show. I mean, is, wasn't the lesson of the Georgia runoffs that like giving people money is politically wise. Um, and so, I, you know, I get that you want to have some sort of economic rationale for it, but, but minimum wage hikes have worked very well and they have not led to the, to the sort of the big downside consequences that the economists always warn us about. Remember when they were saying there wouldn't be any restaurants left in Seattle? <laughs> when they raised the minimum wage to fifteen dollars, yeah, and I the same thing here. There's never gonna be any more restaurants, and I'm like, I can't throw, I, you know, I can't swing a dead cat here without hitting fifty restaurants. You know, like, they're doing okay even in the crisis. So um, it's just they keep warning about the, you know, the dark consequences of actually paying people a living wage, and it's like, no, what happens actually when you give people a minimum wage is that they go back and they, they buy other stuff at other businesses, and it's a it's a virtuous circle, um, and so that the policy case here is is thin. I think the political case here is thin. Um, and, it, and it's disappointing. I mean, it's just, it's frustrating because we, we do have so many Democrats who are invested in, in doing the right thing and, and, and making progress. And we're getting hung up on, you know, these three or four people in the Senate who are just going to be a thorn in our sides until we, you know, until we enlarge our caucus with more progressives or we primary the people that are that are bothering us, but we can't do that to Joe Manchin. I just I can't say that enough. <laughs> All right, we'll we'll get to uh, to Joe Manchin a little before we uh, get to Joe Manchin. I want to ask you about another Joe, Joe Biden. Uh, there's I read uh, articles from uh, people who share my leftist view all the time, comparing Joe Biden to LBJ, Linda Baines Johnson who uh, used the power of the presidency to intimidate and bully his uh, Democratic uh, senators and congressmen to doing what he wanted. Uh, Joe Biden doesn't seem interested in using the power of the presidency. He's sort of conceding in his own way that Joe Manchin has more power than he does. I'm disappointed with Joe Biden on this front. What's your attitude about how Joe Biden is performing so far as president? Um. Uh, you know, I've, I've, I like, I think he's done, he's done some good stuff with executive orders, right? Um, and I think like, uh, and, and I know there are a lot of listeners on your show who are an organized labor. I think he's, I think he's shown, shown signs of actually being even better than, than we might have actually hoped about, about issues for organized labor. And that could come into play in the NLRB and that could come into play in all, all kinds of different ways. And I, I really loved his speech about the Amazon workers. And I, I didn't expect that, honestly. Um, but in terms of the dynamic with Congress, um, you know, I, I personally find the approach too, too hands off. And um, I certainly wasn't a fan of, of the, the sort of the childish um, way that, that Trump went about attacking people. But there is something to the president as the party leader. And the president as the party leader is, in effect, kind of a party whip in the, in the legislative chambers. And one of Joe Biden's jobs, I think, is to is to get together with Manchin and Cinnamon and whoever else is the holdout here for things that he wants to do, and say you got to get on board. Like you, you can't you can't be grinding business on the Senate floor to a halt all the time. And if they if we want these this handful of senators to at some point change the Senate's rule to be able to, to govern with a simple majority, Joe Biden is the one that needs to lead on that issue. He's the one with the 57, 60% approval rating right now. He's the one with the political capital who could come out and say, 
I, I respect the, you know, the desire for bipartisanship. I share it myself. I campaigned on it, but obviously folks, you look, I know you've got two eyes. You can see no, no more malarkey. You know, good Joe Biden it up a little bit, you know, like, <laughs> there. you know, as Corn Pop once told me, um, <laughs> you know, you can't get bipartisanship out of an empty sack or whatever. You know, <laughs> metaphors, do what you got to do, but go out there and say, we tried, you know, we tried to get Republicans on board. And Republicans won't vote for a bill that has 80% support. What are they going to vote for? What are they going to work with us on? And the answer is nothing. And if Joe Biden needs to go out there and set an ultimatum, they say, like, I promise bipartisanship. I'm not going to give up on it yet. Fine. Be like, OK, we're going to give the Republicans until May. You know, we, we've got these we've got H.R. one. We've got a voting rights bill that we want to get passed. Um, pick two other things that you think are important and say, like, you've got until May to produce 10 Republican votes. Um, for a bill that Democrats have, have basically agreed on, you know, to go out and negotiate, fine, that's great. But if I don't see some progress on bipartisanship before May, I'm going to be the one calling for a filibuster to end. And I think what really bothers me about about what, what I hear coming from Manchin and Cinema is they're not putting any conditionality on it. You know, they're just saying I'm opposed to this. Yeah. They're not saying I might change my mind if if Republicans play hardball. They're not saying, uh, you know, I, they're not leaving themselves any daylight to, to wiggle through. And they're setting themselves up for flip-flop ads, you know, if they do eventually change their mind. If they're, if they're playing some long game mm. um, where they're trying to let the Republicans um, hang themselves before they move on, on procedural hardball, um, someone has to be the first mover on that. And that should be the president. Like the president should have a clear position on this in the same way that the president should have a clear position on enlarging the Supreme Court. Remember, we've forgotten all about the Supreme Court, right? But like, oh, yeah. I'm roaring back in a couple of months. Yeah. But, you know, the, the president needs to lead on this stuff because, yeah, there are some people in the Senate who are afraid of the, of the political consequences of this stuff. And he has to take the heat from them. You know, he has to say, I'll bleed out two points of my popularity if you take this vote for me, because I think it'll benefit the party and it'll benefit the country. And we can't do anything that I said we were going to do if you don't do this. Um, and then if worse comes to worse, you go Trump on him. You know, I mean, don't, uh, you know, don't. Uh, make fun of her clothes or anything but but uh you know to, to call her out be like hey everybody you know you you could have a 15 dollars minimum wage right now um you know we everyone in dc could have statehood we could have a bigger majority if it wasn't for her yeah <laughs> if, her, if it wasn't for joe mansion you, you 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 two gotta get on board get on the team um whether that would work or not i have no idea you know for, for all i know it could embolden them or they'd switch parties or something but um but I think I can't, imagine, I can't imagine switching parties. No, I, mean, uh, I, 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 yeah, I just uh, now uh, before we get you mentioned Trump, I want to pivot to Trump and the Republicans in a little while. But I just have to close with Joe Manchin. Uh, I have friends of the lefty persuasion who are absolutely convinced that Joe Manchin uh, would if you pushed him. If not, if you, but if Joe Biden pushed him, he would move. <laughs> he wouldn't listen to you or me in a million years. Uh, but you got to put the pressure. I have a lot of union friends. Tell you you got to put the but you got to put the pressure on Manchin. He'll he'll bend. He'll he will. You watch. And they always go. Look how he phrases stuff. He phrases things in such a way like wiggle room is what you call it. Oh yeah, I can move here. And, uh, do you uh, share their sense? of optimism, if you will, that Joe Manchin uh, could be moved to do the right thing if pressure was applied to him? You know, I think that Manchin knows that he's in this like unassailable political position within the party. 
you know, the, the, imagine that, you, you know, you know that you're the only person <laughs> who could do what you're doing. Um, and, uh, and that without you, the whole thing would collapse like a, like a house of cards. You know, you're the one propping up the Senate Democratic majority. And so you're going to think that you have a lot of power. The, at the end of the day, the question is like, what does he want? Um, and if we have to build, you know, a, a $2 trillion naval base in, in West Virginia or something, actually West Virginia is landlocked, isn't it? Uh, you know, what, whatever, you know, Air Force Base, whatever. Um, like what, the, what Biden and his allies need to be doing um, if they don't think that public pressure is going to work on, on Manchin is figure out what his price is. Okay. What, what do we need to do to get you on board with this? Um, what do I need to promise you? If you lose your race in 2024, what will we do for you? You know, what, what ambassadorship do you want? Um, what cabinet position do you want in the next democratic administration? And, um, you know, pull out all the stops because, uh, you know, the pressure is not going to apply itself. Now, I don't know that I agree that he's just going to bend to the pressure, but I do agree that, that we're never going to know unless, unless the pressure is applied. Um, and so Biden, the people on Biden's team need to get busy uh, applying that pressure because, you know, this is why we sent you to Washington was to get things done. And people just, the, the democratic rank and file in 2022 are not going to want to hear, um, vote for us. Uh, next time we'll be better um, because reasons and uh, hopefully we'll get more Senate seats, even though we did nothing with the Senate majority that you gave us last time. But if you give us more, we'll do more than nothing. Um, I just don't know how you package that on a, uh, on a bumper sticker or, or I don't know how you like jazz up the, the volunteers to go door to door under those circumstances. Like people are going to need to see something. People are going to need to see change. Um, and if they don't get any change, they're not going to come out to vote. I, I've talked, I mean, I can't, I can't, I've lost count of the number of students that I have who, who said, why hasn't anything happened yet? Biden's been in power over six weeks. What's going on? And I'm like, okay, you know, as a social scientist, I can say like, okay, there's, there's a million roadblocks built into this political system that makes everything move very slowly. But, but at the end of the day, the voters are not going to care that, that, you know, 5% of the democratic base is going to sit at home in 2022 if they don't get anything in the next two years. Um, and we're going to get clocked and, and that's not going to help Joe Manchin or Kirsten Sinema. Then they're going to be in the minority. And I, I can't imagine that that's what they want. So, yeah, I don't know if I knew how to, if I knew how to get these two on board and I believe me, I would have, you know, I'd already done it. <laughs> ben, you're muted. Sorry. Let's move on to the other. I always turn it off when the train goes by, then I forget to turn it on. Uh, you figure I would gotten used to this podcasting after two year, after a year in the attic. But, uh, uh, okay, so uh, I said let's switch to the other side of the aisle. Uh, if, if we can't motivate people uh, into voting, maybe we can frighten them into voting by taking a look what the alternative is. Uh, Donald Trump uh, emerged from... Uh, his uh, cocoon to uh, give a speech this weekend, last weekend at CPAC uh, at their convention. Ted Cruz uh, gave a speech there. Uh, I, it's, it's an open debate as to who is more insane. 
<laughs> Donald Trump or Ted Cruz. Uh, so you're, you're our, uh, our uh, Trump expert, uh, at least for the moment. Uh, talk a bit about what you uh, saw with Donald Trump uh, and that speech and what his long game is. If you could see a long game from Donald Trump, what would it be? Sure. So first of all, like our, our, our man in Havana there gave like a Gettysburg address. Do you know how long he talked for? An hour and a half. He gave an hour and a half long speech. Okay. I, I don't know who listens to it, to anything that's an hour and a half long anymore, but, but good Lord, what a self-indulgent, just what a self-indulgent clown. He basically gave his stump speech, you know, um, uh, peppered with like new insights about Joe Biden. Um, it's, you know, uh, it's too many, um, you know, too many immigrants at the border. It's cancel culture. It's, uh, he went on, there's like three paragraphs in the transcript about windmills, you know, and, um, <laughs> no, it's, just, it's just the same old stuff you know the radical left wants to to, to replace your your stove with with windmills and um and there's just two, there's a crisis caravans at the border um all this stuff and he went on a long riff about voter fraud I, but you know to set all that stuff aside the substance of the speech aside frankly who cares right like um you're at a conference with a bunch of crazy people um and that's the chief crazy person and he gave a crazy speech but i, I just want to point everybody to the last paragraph um when he said um uh, we will. So with your help, we'll take back the house and win the Senate. And then a Republican president will make a triumphant return to the white house. And I wonder who that will be. I wonder who that will be. Who, who, who will that be? I wonder standing before you today, I am supremely confident that for our movement, for our party and for our country, our brightest days are just ahead. So, you know what I mean? He's, he's, he's teasing his return. He, he, he's, he's going to keep everyone, um, in suspense as long as possible. He wants to he wants to keep his grip on the Republican Party as long as possible, and he knows that the the nomination is his if he wants it. Um, he, he they did the straw poll at CPAC. He got like fifty eight percent or something. It's actually a little bit lower than I thought it would be. Yeah, but, it's lower than I thought. Yeah, um, but he you know he's the clear choice I think of the base if if he decides to run again. God bless him. Um, and uh, so that that was my big takeaway from the speech is that he he does seem to be entertaining a second run. Now, you know, with, with this guy, there's always all these sources, you know, like one of these Vanity Fair articles where they quote like 15 anonymous sources in Trump world. And they're like, the president, he doesn't actually want to run again. But, but, but other people say he does. It's like, who knows, right? Like, I'm not at Mar-a-Lago. I have no idea what he wants to do. Um, but but what he proved there was that he's, you know, he still is the, um, you know, he's, he still is the, the, the real force behind the Republican party right now, but his speech was actually less crazy than Ted Cruz's. We talk about Ted Cruz's speech. Right yes. Now? That's what I was, I was about to say, what about, uh, what did Ted Cruz's speech show? Go ahead. Um, let me just, let me just read you a critical passage of Ted Cruz's speech. Okay. Go ahead. I don't know how you feel about people reading stuff on air, but I like it. It's, it's a new thing. You, feel free to do an imitation of Ted Cruz delivering in this oration. When you do this, look, man, I actually like to think, um, that I actually cannot be as unlikable as Ted Cruz. <laughs> it's like, it's just a core, it's just a core part of my identity that, that, um, that I'm not that insufferable, but I, I you know, maybe, maybe I'm wrong about that. Um, he has this riff about, uh, okay, by the way, how many of you have eaten at a restaurant in the last six months? Can I just stop and say how strange the rules are right now? Da -da 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 -da. Um, uh, remember, this is all about science. It's actually, it may not be elevation. I think that there are hormones that are released in your thighs when you're sitting. So you can sit at the table and there's no virus being transmitted. But if you stand up, put the mask on. I mean, <laughs> like, okay, he's joking, right? I get it. He's joking. 
hey, what is he talking about? Right. He like, nobody thinks the rules in restaurants make any sense. You know, it's like, obviously it's stupid that you wear, like you walk into a restaurant with a mask on and then you sit down and you eat without one. That's why most sensible people are not going to restaurants right now um, because the rules are, are ridiculous and everyone yeah. knows. It. Um, but it, it's just, it's just proof that like, there is no core to the Republican party right now. Yeah. It's just a culture war. There's just, you know, uh, trans people playing sports and there's trans people in the bathrooms and there's that yeah, Dr. Seuss is getting canceled. I mean, the, 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 the theme of CPAC was America uncanceled, you know? And it's like, nobody's canceling you, man. I mean, you're having this enormous conference. Nobody's telling you can't do that. So what does it mean to be canceled? This means some people don't like you. Um, and I'm sorry, you can't, you know, you, you can't tell me not to like you that that's cancellation, right? That like that's mind control. Um, and so that's, that seems to be all they've got. And Ted Cruz is just such a sad character. Um, I mean, he's, he's an evil slimy, uh, little toad, but, but he is really smart. I mean, he's an Ivy and not that going to the Ivy league makes you smart. Okay. But, but he is obviously a very smart guy. Um, and he's one of the things that bothers me about politicians the most is when you have these like very smart, like sort of, uh, elite educated people who are cosplaying as idiots because they think it's appealing. Um, and that's what, that's what Ted Cruz is doing. Ted Cruz doesn't, Ted Cruz does not care whether the six like least read volumes in the Dr. Seuss canon are being published by the Dr. Seuss foundation. He doesn't care. You know what I mean? He has no feelings. I'm sure he looks at his children and he's like, that's a human, you know, like, he does not love. He doesn't feel love because he's just uh, a slimy little vehicle for ambition. And so if it's Dr. Seuss that gets into the, to the white house, then it's good. Then Dr. Seuss it is like, that's the big policy issue in America. It's not that we still are down 9.5 million jobs from when the COVID pandemic started. It's Dr. Seuss is the big problem. And it's all over Fox news. It's all over the federalist. It's all over right-wing media. We knew they were going to do this the whole time. It's culture war all the way down. And they really are out of policy ideas. And they proved that when they did nothing with their power in office. Um, So it's just, uh, I, I, I watched his speech and I watched Josh Hawley's speech and I actually found Ted Cruz's speech to be, um, less substantive and more ridiculous than Holly's. So I remember you asked me a couple of weeks ago who I was more afraid of. And I think I'm actually officially more afraid of Holly because Holly has like at least a little bit more policy substance to him. He, he made a rec. He was like, let's break up the big tech companies. And I'm like, okay, what are you, how are you going to break up Facebook? You know, like do I go to Facebook one or Facebook two, you know, like, well, that's not even a policy, but okay, fine. You want to break up the big tech companies, go, go, go to town. Uh, break up Google. That's fine. That's something that at least people can get behind. Ted Cruz is just up there making stupid jokes and, um, you know, to just, he's just, a, he's just a Twitter personality um, invested with a Senate seat. And I, yeah. I hate him so much. <laughs> well, that was a great riff, by the way. Uh, speaking of cancel culture, mm. Uh, one, of, one of my favorite themes is the utter hypocrisy of the Republican Party. As I say, uh, there is no, there are no principles; they're just tactics that they use in a fight. So, the issue of cancel culture. Uh, as soon as the foundation said that they would no longer be publishing these four books, they immediately uh, sprung into action about cancel culture, coming to the aid of uh, Dr. Seuss, who passed on about twenty years ago, uh, or thirty years ago, and was I should point out uh, would was far more liberal than pretty much uh, anybody in the Democratic Party, let alone the Republican Party. He was a very liberal man, uh, the actual uh, Dr. Seuss. But cancel culture, they cancel their own. 
the Republican Party that, that goes on and on about Democrats with cancel culture are trying to cancel the existence of Congressman Adam Kinzinger and Congresswoman uh, uh, Liz Cheney and uh, Mitt Romney, the senator. Uh, so talk a little bit about the future of the Kinzingers and the Cheneys uh, in a world in which MAGA rules and they're d- demanding obedience uh, and a subservience to Donald Trump. You know, I think there's two things going on here. I think it was telling that Liz Cheney won a secret vote of the of the GOP caucus in the House to keep her her position as the third ranking Republican. You know, so if if all of the Republicans in the House really believed that what Liz Cheney did by voting for impeachment was uh, was enough to get her cast out of the tent, then they then they would have you know they would have voted to strip her of her power, and they didn't do it. And that suggests to me that they're still actually. I know Trump loves this this phrase there's actually still i think a silent majority of republicans even in the house um who are just playing along with this and they don't actually really believe it but that there's only you know 10 of them that are willing to put their careers on the line um by coming down on on the right side of this what i will say is that they so they voted to impeach impeach trump right but they're still voting with the with the republican party on all of the policy issues you know so kinzinger He's going to vote against the, the relief package. He'll vote against the minimum wage hike. He'll vote against anything Democrats want to do. And, and so when, when push comes to shove, he knew it was an empty vote when he took it, right? Um, because they, he was not going to be convicted. Um, he, he may have sealed his own political doom. And I guess that, you know, I can credit him with some courage because he may lose his primary next year. Um, but it, that's this is where I really don't understand. It's like, okay, so <laughs> you have thrown yourself on your own sword and said, like, you know, say la vie, like whatever will be, will be. Um, I'm going to get primaried by some Trump maniac and I may lose to that person. And I, I did so with integrity and I'll, and I'll, I'll leave here with integrity. Um, is that all you want to do to make a stand for, for democracy and to make a stand for common sense? You want to take that one vote, go back to voting for, for all of these, like, uh, you know, everything that's against the, the working people in this country. You know, what, what did you really accomplish there? And so to, to me, the, the future of the Republican Party is obviously Trumpist. I, I was on a TV show a couple of years ago, um, Paul Lisnick's show. Do you, do you know the show? It was uh, mm-hmm. Paul Lisnick's tonight. It doesn't, doesn't exist anymore, unfortunately. Um, but after, um, after Bruce Ranner went down, he, he said, uh, what do you think is the future of the, the Illinois Republican Party? And uh, as you know, I'm not an expert on state politics. But I said, the future of the Republican Party in Illinois is just Jeannie Eves. You know, it's going to get crazier and crazier. The longer they're out of power, the more they're going to gravitate towards these maniacs who are just um, are just performance artists who don't care about policy. Um, they love the crowds. They love the adulation from from the MAGA masses. And they don't care whether they I don't think they even care whether they win or lose. Right. They're, they're out there for to be famous. Um, and that's where the party is headed. And I don't see anything at this point that suggests to me other anything other than that's where the center of gravity of the Republican Party is moving. That's why I'm so concerned about the next 10 years. And that's why I'm so angry. Um, that Democrats will not change these ridiculous rules to, to, to reinforce our democracy, because this is not just about the minimum wage. This is about voting rights. This is about the integrity of democracy. This is about our ability to win in 2024 and 2022. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I, these people are obviously the future, unless you can show me a poll that says, um, that says otherwise, but, but it seems like the base has gone along with this. And um, just as a little bit of an aside, um, 
Dr. Seuss is, is terrible. I mean, <laughs> I knew you I wanted to say this. I, I have to say that. <laughs> I have to my chest. But, the, but the, uh, my, my kid, I show him a, 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 cat, a, a Dr. Seuss book. He runs away screaming because the, because the characters are grotesque. And The Cat in the Hat, which is the most famous thing, a book, I think, in the canon, is a home invasion story. Think about it. <laughs> two little kids, they're home, they're, they're home and alone. And, and, a, and, a, and a grown cat man shows up at the door and is like, I want to play with you. Um, and they're like, no, 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 my parents aren't home. And he just like barges in, you know, and, and does all kinds of, we wrecks the house and, and does all kinds of weird things to him, to them. And, and uh, what is it, the fish or the cat or something is like, you shouldn't be here. Like, um, and I'm like, what, like, what is this? It, this? This has no resonance with children today. So you know what? You should just cancel the whole, I'm, I'm going to get myself mental for this, but just cancel the whole <laughs> Um, uh, that's the hypocrisy yeah, here is, is mind blowing. Okay, do you remember a controversy um, about a children's book called Heather Has Two Mommies? Yes, from the nineties. Yes, uh, where it was it was I think it was the first big children's book that depicted a non traditional family structure. You know, a lesbian couple, um, and and the right spent ten years yeah. trying to cancel that book. Yes, you know, trying to get it. you know what people would do? They would go to the public library. Um, and they would check it out and they would never return it Yeah, because they wanted to disappear it from public libraries. Um, and so it's like, I don't know anybody that, that was invested in, in making sure that like uh, the Mulberry street book was not, <laughs> no one cares. Yeah. It's a, the, the, the Seuss foundation made this decision themselves, but it's like the, the details of the case don't matter, right? What they care about, they want the clicks, they want the outrage. They want the white grandmas and grandpas of America whipped up into a constant state of fervor that all the stuff that they loved from childhood is being attacked and destroyed by the radical left. That's what this is all about. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I, I don't, I'm with you. And I have to say that uh, we do a show maybe once a year uh, where the, uh, somebody from the American library association comes on mm-hmm. and we review that. I think we, we do a countdown, David, where we count down like the 10 most banned books in America. Yeah. And I could tell you from having done this show repeatedly, that list is populated with books that talk about gender identity. Mm-hmm. A young kid who realizes that uh, he's gay uh, or, or who's, who's has two gay parents. It's just, you know, and those are the books that are getting banned in America, my friends. And they're not being banned by woke cancel culturists. They're being banned by unwoke cancel culturists. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's a totally they're frauds. Uh, and I don't think we can point that out enough. Um, and uh, I think uh, you're, you, which, that riff you just went on just underscores the importance of Joe Biden. Uh, so, Joe, I know you're, you always listen to when uh, David is on the show. Please <laughs> step up. And twi- yeah. if you can't get the two, if you can't get the two Democratic senators from Delaware to vote for a minimum wage, that sends a message to the world that you don't want the minimum wage. And unless you're willing to refute that, uh, you're going to have to live with that because it's a disgrace. But the more I think about it, David, that uh, the two his home state uh, Dems uh, won't vote for it. All right, we're going to close with this. I said I would ask you about this. Uh, this has been my topic of the last couple of weeks. This will probably be the last time I discuss it uh, because Neera Tandon is now leaving the stage, the uh, national stage. She was Biden's nominee for whatever office of budget management, uh, and she was a chronic tweeter. Uh, and she uh, tweeted all kinds of snide remarks about Bernie 
senators and his supporters and various Republicans. Uh, I am a believer if you tweet, uh, how do I put this? If you uh, if you can't do the time, don't do the crime. And my yeah. attitude is she should not have backed down one bit from any. T- she should have said, I am the most qualified human in America right now to run this office. And it doesn't matter what I tweeted. You're canceling my culture by saying I can't tweet. I yeah. wish a Democrat would take that stand. But instead, David, she takes down the tweets. She takes them down and starts apologizing. Like one of her tweets was that Ted Cruz had no heart. I think she said vampires have more heart than Ted Cruz. Wait, you're, you no longer believe that? You know, what have you seen in the last six months that convinced you to say that Ted Cruz has a heart? So what is, we'll close with your position on pu- public f- officials who tweet and then back away from their tweets when they're seeking higher office or something. Go ahead. This is a norm that I really don't understand. Okay, first of all, if Neera Tandon was a Republican, she would have given a she would have given a, a press conference after her hearing where she had all of her tweets on one of those like white screens behind her and she would have pointed to each one and been like that was right that was right ted cruz has no heart like you're a scumbag i don't like david i don't like bernie sanders the press secretary you're goddamn right i did i ordered the code red and i'd do it again you know like they would not pack they would not back down from anything um but the reality is like i mean who who goes to twitter and thinks that it's like a space um, for people to be nice to each other. You know, like if you're a prominent person on Twitter, you're probably getting into fights with people all the time. And I, I think that one of Tandon's strategic mistakes was that she she got into it too much with with the with the left flank of the of the Democratic Party. And that means that she a, a critical slice of three or four Democratic senators could not have cared less whether she got that confirmation or not. Um, and so she didn't have she wasn't unified within the party. And that goes back to all these bruising primary fights, you know, Clinton, Sanders, um, but, but Biden, Sanders, all this stuff, Warren and Sanders. Um, and I think that she uh, particularly as a leader of a Democratic think tank, I think that, you know, in some she probably would have been better off. She had not done some of that stuff. Now, I say that as someone who has like I publicly gotten to do a fight with like David Serrata, who was who was Bernie's, um, you know, on Bernie's team. I, I really don't like him at all. Um, and I thought that some of the people he hired for his campaign were were like a net detriment. But like, I don't want to be the odd. Uh, I don't want to be the direct of the office of management and budget either like i don't need i don't need bernie sanders vote for my life or to do my job or anything i have no higher aspirations than to write my column and come on the show and be and be a professor i'm happy you know like she's the one who wanted to be more than what she was um and so at that point i guess you have to you have to ask yourself is is this helping me or is this hurting me sometimes before i send a tweet i'm like what good could possibly come of this you know (laughs) You know, like, do I want to be up at midnight reading a hundred people attacking me or not? My experience has generally been, even when I believe what I tweeted, it doesn't, it doesn't accomplish anything. And so maybe she should ask herself that. I don't think it's a coincidence though, that the, you know, the the people that have gotten the fewest votes from Republicans are all non-white people. Um, That's just like a, that's just a thing that Republicans are able to rally around is like defeat the nominations of, uh, of non-white people. Um, as for Neera Tandon, I, I'm sure she's a very talented person. I doubt that she's the only person that could competently direct the Office of Management and Budget, and so I don't really care one way or another about her nomination. But I do think, in keeping with uh, you know with the whole theme of my career here, just own it. 
You know, if you think Ted Cruz has no heart, you have 70% of the public that's there with you, you know, just, just double down. Be like, yeah. you're, you're, you're damn right. He has no heart. Um, he cares more about Dr. Seuss than he does about whether you have a job. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So. Good. yeah. Uh, by the way, I would welcome the, the, wow, what a, what a great moment that would be in Senate history where a confirmation hearing turns on whether Ted Cruz has a heart. We're now going to bring on experts to testify one way. Ted Cruz, <laughs> feel free to bring on your own. You know, you can <laughs> find someone in America who will defend you. Uh, it would be a very entertaining and enlightening hearing. I look forward to that. But no, when you take the damn tweet down... Anyway, all right. You know, the Marcus is taking your tweets down. I'm never going to do it, Ben. Mark my words. I pledge to you. No matter what happens to me, I'm, I'm not taking my tweets down. Okay? Yeah, it's don't take them down. Way. You know, I talk about this all the time on the show. I mean, I've written. I've been at this game, David, for 40 years. I've written so many articles, and they're all on the Internet. Yeah. Can you imagine if I were up for office? I'd be taking down. <laughs> what? I, I mean, I go back, you know, it's like what's done is done, you know, and if he wrote something that's really stupid and doesn't stand the test of time, you say, what an idiot I was, you know, and just be like, I was wrong. I was wrong. I'm wrong all the time. Yeah. A year later, I'm like, oh, you know. Yeah, I thought better. I thought better. work had a chance to be president. That was wrong. You know, I don't go back and take down my tweets. Right. Uh, All right. So what we're going to do is we'll hold off for another time for uh, the explication of your Twitter war with David Sirota. I I am really looking forward to hearing that one. That sounds like a fun uh, episode. Uh, But we'll just we've we've we we've run out of time, so we'll uh, leave it there. David Ferris, thank you so much uh, for joining the show. Great to be here, Ben. It's always a pleasure. Uh, thanks so much for having me. At least once a month on our, our show, David Ferris comes on. And so uh, we'll see him next month. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everybody.